Well, it's nice to see everyone. We have been away from Bible classes now for, what is it, what is it three and a half months or something. So nice to have everybody back. If you uh, have been paying attention at all to what we have been doing with reference to publicizing Bible classes, then you will know that we are going to, this morning, launch into a study about our core values. And it's, it's interesting, you know, for about, uh, well, I don't know, 15 years or so, our church has had a list of core values. And Christine, could you please, um, up in the right-hand corner of the desktop, you'll see a PowerPoint. This says core values. Well, that doesn't surprise me. (laughs) And here's the first thing that I want to say about this core value statement that we've had now for, as I said, probably 10 or 15 years, but which almost nobody knows about because we, you know, we occasionally hand it out maybe once or twice a year. It might somehow come to somebody's attention. Um, Or if you happen to be on the website and you're wanting to know something about our church, you might look on there and you might find our core values. But it's not something that we're constantly talking about. And yet, it is the case that our core values, more than anything else, give us an identity. And so, in fact, I would say that if you don't know anything at all about our core values, you're not going to actually know who we are as a church. Because there is something about this core value statement that speaks to us, speaks to to the notion of who we are and provides for us an identity. And so it shapes our character, actually, as Christians and as a church. You know, for a long time, we were what we would call a church of Christ. Things have changed drastically in some ways in terms of what that means, what our identity is. And this identifying statement of core values was settled upon after a great deal of reflection and thought. And I actually think they're excellent, although I didn't have much to do with them. There were a couple of points on the core values that were revised after I got here, so I may have had some input there. But for the most part, this was done years before I got here. And I just think that whoever did them, church, uh, you did a great job. And so it's too bad that we don't reference them more than the once a year, once a year or so that they come out, because I really think that they are uh, quite good in terms of what they say. In fact, they're so good that Kevin and I have decided to go through them uh, during this fall in kind of a syncopated way so that I'm going to be teaching one aspect of the core values one week. Kevin is going to teach one aspect of the core values the next week. It's going to tend to be kind of biblical, theological, and practical, but we'll see how all of that goes. And then I might also tell you 
that our, our leaders in our church, and when I say our leaders, I mean specifically our elders and staff, and not just so much our ministry leaders, but our elders and staff and their wives have for months now been going through these core values, this same list, and have been doing that in a mentoring kind of way. And so what we did was we decided that we would mentor each other. And so all the elders and staff and their wives decided to divide up in pairs and mentor each other specifically along the lines of our core values. So we've been talking about this list for months now, and not just talking about it in a cursory kind of way, but we have been talking about it actually quite in depth and going through it in a way that we think has drastically impacted our lives. And I can tell you that certainly happened in my case. The conversations that I've had with Miles and with Darcy, where um, Darcy has mentored me and I've mentored Miles, uh, those conversations have been rich. They've been very good. And it's all focused specifically on our core values and where we're at with these things that are so central to our identity as Christians and as a church. So this fall, you're going to have a chance to go through this list of things which I think are really important in terms of identifying who we are. So just very quickly, here they are. Reliance on prayer, the active involvement of the Holy Spirit, an overall atmosphere of grace, continual dependence on Scripture, growing personal relationships with God, intentional discipleship, every member of the Lord's body being a minister, serving and reaching people inside and outside the church, and the expansion and growth of the kingdom. These are things that we've said for a while now. Identify who we are as a church. A lot more than something like, well, we're the Calgary Church of Christ. Instead, we want very much to be this and to reflect these kinds of core values. And my job for the remainder of the time today is to talk about the very first one, reliance on prayer, which, of course, fits perfectly with what we're doing this fall. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into this particular core value that identifies our church. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for the blessing, the gift we have of being able to go through these things which are so central to us. We hope, we pray, that these things do indeed identify who we are as a church. We want to be these things. We want you, God, to make us these things. We want your Holy Spirit to be present, to shape us and transform us, that we would reflect these things. And help us today as we think about being reliant upon prayer to allow that particular facet of our life together to identify us in a significant way. Make us people who rely on you and who pray to you because we rely on you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. What I want to do now is I just want to go through some biblical passages, all of them from the book of Acts, which I think illustrate extraordinarily well the reliance of the early church on prayer. And it's interesting. You can't separate 
reliance on prayer from reliance on the Holy Spirit. You can't separate reliance on prayer from reliance on the Word of God. You can't separate reliance on prayer from God as a person. You can't separate reliance on prayer from the person of Jesus and his death on the cross. All of this comes as a package. You can't separate reliance on prayer from the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does within us. Um, You can't separate reliance on prayer from the kind of faith that God calls out of us. So all these things come as a package. And what I think is wonderful is the way that they came as part of a package in the early church. Because when you turn to the book of Acts, I've, like I have often said, and we did this when we went through, through the, uh, the study of the Holy Spirit a few years ago. Like we have often said that the, the book of Acts could be retitled, not the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which wasn't really, I mean, didn't have this title forever. It was simply the second volume of Luke's gospel in one sense. But I've said that we could retitle it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? And if it's the acts of the Holy Spirit, it makes sense then that prayer, which the Spirit is so much part of, as we're going to see as this fall unfolds, that the prayer that the Spirit is so much part of would be one of those things that would identify right at the core what the early church was about in the book of Acts. And so Holy Spirit and prayer in the book of Acts seem to constantly Go in hand. And that's what we're going to see this morning. It's going to be very clear. The spirit is working within the church. But what we see is the church constantly praying and the Holy Spirit using the prayers of the church to bless them and bless their ministry. So I want you to turn, first of all, to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And you have to understand the context here. Jesus has just left. Over in the first eight verses, he talks to the church, to the apostles in this case, both about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the kingdom of God. Those are kind of his two main foci. And then at the end of that, he says, and you're going to be witnesses of these things. But that had to feel to them like a huge burden. Jesus is leaving. He's ascending into heaven. He's gone now. He leaves the church behind. And the apostles have got to feel the burden of all of that. And so what do they do in light of the burden that they feel with Jesus ascending and leaving? In verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. This is immediately after the ascension from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were the apostles. And then verse 14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And that's very interesting because there are a lot of other things they could have been doing. They could have been running and hiding, for instance. They could have decided that they need to do something really active. They could have said, you know, if we're going to be the church, we need to start preaching immediately. And they run down to the temple and start preaching. 
But instead, in light of what Jesus has just said, they go, and specifically it says, they constantly are praying for God to come and do something among them. And so my question is, did he? In response to the prayers of the church, did God do something? And if he did, what did he do? Now, we know immediately after this, with some more prayer, that Matthias is set apart through lots to be a replacement apostle for Judas, whom they'd lost. So Matthias comes. He's part of the ministry now, too. But what happens immediately after that, that God clearly is a part of in direct response to the church praying about what they're going to be doing since Jesus is gone? What happens? You know, church, what happens? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come in just some insignificant way. The Holy Spirit comes in a dramatic way. A life-changing way. A world-changing kind of way. And I think that there's a direct correlation to the heart and ministry of the apostles praying and focusing on what they're going to be doing after Jesus leaves and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit comes, he's coming in conjunction with the prayers of the apostles. And of course, we have to ask the question, like how could we not ask the question, what will happen if we pray? Will God, through his Spirit, come and do something among us because we prayed? Could it be that dramatic? Well, it seems like it's at least a possibility. Look at chapter 2. And we've read verses 42 through 47 many, 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 many times. But I just want us to, again, look at verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, They devoted themselves. This is kind of like that word constantly that we just saw over in chapter 1. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And what's the next few words and a prayer. They devoted themselves, it says, to prayer. It wasn't a fringe event. It wasn't something that they were doing occasionally. They devoted themselves to prayer along with these other really important things. Now, it's interesting because in our church, so often in a lot of churches, We do devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We do a lot of this. It's been our tradition for centuries now that somebody stands up on Sunday morning and does something with the Bible and shares the apostles' teaching. And we want very much to have close relationships. We have a whole ministry that Michael runs, our life group ministry, devoted to fellowship. When it comes to the breaking of bread... Many people would say, if this is indeed the Lord's Supper, which I think it is, that that's the the epitome of our worship service. It's the central thing of what we do on Sunday mornings. If we weren't going to do anything else, we would need to get together and have the Lord's Supper. And I think there's some truth to that. But then this fourth element, in terms of devoting ourselves to prayer, it doesn't seem to me like it gets quite the attention that the other elements do. 
Occasionally, we will have a time where we'll say, you know, let's get together and pray. And so maybe we'll meet over here in the fireside room as we've done before and have a time of prayer together. But really, how often does that happen? Could we say that we are devoted to prayer? It's at least worth asking the question if maybe there needs to be some more devotion to prayer that needs to go on if this was so foundational to the ministry of the early church. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Peter and John have been in trouble. They've been in front of the Sanhedrin. They had been preaching about Jesus. The Jews, the leaders, didn't like that. And so Peter and John have made a testimony before the Sanhedrin about what it is that they're doing. And eventually they're released. So you get to verse 23 and it says, on their release, Peter, and and let me just stop here for a sec. What we're about to read, if you haven't read this in a while, I hope you can read this with fresh eyes. Um, This is an amazing passage of scripture. Okay, so just be ready. This is not, you know, sometimes we read passages of Scripture, you read them and you go, okay, we read from the Bible this morning. This is so much more than just reading from a portion of Scripture to back up some kind of point. Okay? On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, your father, our father, David. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod. And Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's amazing. Like the text specifically says in verse 31, after they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken. And it was shaken because the Holy Spirit came among them. And the Holy Spirit was doing things directly in response to the prayers that the people were offering to God. And again, you just have to ask the question. Are we not to experience this? Are we not to experience the Holy Spirit coming among us because we prayed? 
I'm kind of ready for the, for the building to be shaken a little bit here. We need to think seriously about what that means in our lives as Christians in our church. That the early church experienced this in response to prayer. Turn to Acts 6. One of the things the churches bemoan all the time is not having enough people who are just on fire for the Lord in terms of their willingness to serve. Like all the time, whether it's preachers and teachers or elders or whomever, we always are looking for more people to do things for Jesus. Like right now, for example, I know that my wife would love to have some people say, I'll teach Bible class to the kids. We've been trying ever since I got here to have some kind of rotation system where teachers can teach for a few months and then somebody else can come in and spell them off and maybe they only have to teach half a year or something like that. Well, I know that in the last 11 years that my wife has been teaching almost constantly during the time that our Bible classes have been running. It's just difficult to get people to be willing to do that. And so, you know, we always say, well, nobody wants to do it because they're going to be in there forever and ever. (laughs) Which, first of all, shows what kind of attitude they have about serving the Lord. (laughs) But secondly, they wouldn't have to be in there forever and ever if people would step up and take their role. If somebody would say, yeah, I can help out here. And so we want all the time, we talk all the time about having more people being willing to do the kinds of things that Jesus wants us to do. So I look at Acts chapter 6, verse, well, verse 3, we could say. What's happening is that the apostles have heard about a complaint. They need a ministry to begin, and they want some people to do this ministry. So it says in verse 3, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Notice again, every time I talk about prayer here, it seems like the spirit's coming into the conversation. Who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention. What does it say? To prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, And Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the the apostles are appointing people to serve who have willing hearts and they're appointing them through the act of praying as they lay their hands on them. Servants are appointed in the church of Jesus Christ, it would appear, through a process that includes prayer. And when someone goes to serve, we need to be praying about their active service. We need to be praying that people will step forward and will serve in various ways. But my point is that the ministry of the church included this notion 
of prayer. And notice what the apostles are doing specifically when they appoint these other people to serve in the ways that they do. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. There's a priority among these particular leaders that they might spend their time specifically in these two things. One of the things we've talked about a lot, and I just love that I can even say this. Every time our elders get together, we, get, we try and get together every, Tuesday, every other Tuesday night, twice a month, second Tuesday, fourth Tuesday in the month, the elders get together. And for several years now, we have started every single elders meeting with about 45 minutes of prayer. The list of prayer requests that we have that gets published in the bulletin, is handed out sometimes in the bulletin or is on the website, we go through it every time. We divide it up among ourselves. We take that section. And I'll just tell you, if you're listed in there, you have been named specifically in our prayer times on those Tuesday nights, and we have specifically prayed for you. Because our elders think it's really important that they spend this time in prayer. And they are right. And it is a good thing when leaders in the church spend that kind of time focused specifically in prayer. I'm convinced that that kind of ministry of prayer drove the ministry of the church. And so when deacons are appointed in Acts chapter 6, prayer is right there, part of the process, appointing people for ministry. And when we pray the way that God really wants us to pray, I think that our ministry is going to be blessed. In fact, I would say maybe one of the reasons we don't have as many people ready to share in the way, uh, in terms of ministry as what are sometimes needed is simply because we don't pray enough about it. We need to do some more of that. In fact, elders, we should, when we get together next Tuesday, we should be praying specifically about filling some of those roles in ministry that need to be filled. Turn to Acts chapter 10. This just caught my eye, so I thought I would mention it. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And I just think it's interesting that Luke, as he's describing this Gentile's life, who's in the process of coming to Christ and who is a God-fearer, one who is seeking the Lord, it's interesting that Luke points out specifically that he was a prayer. Clearly, this was not just a minor issue for Luke. He, when he describes Cornelius, he wants to, him to, uh, wants to describe him as God-fearing, who gives generously to those in need and prays to God regularly. That was noteworthy for him. But if he was praying like that, it was worth mentioning. And so he does mention it. Look at Acts chapter 12. In Acts 12, the story is told of Peter's arrest. 
and his escape from prison. And we've all heard this, I think, before, and many of us have. This has almost become um, not a joke, just a, a, almost a humorous incident. In fact, you think, how is it that, how can Peter being in prison be a humorous incident? But it almost is. Look at this. Chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who had belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, just think about this. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, that he had put James to death, he arrests Peter. What do you think he's going to do with Peter? When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And again, what do you think is going to happen after the trial? Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So the church is praying earnestly, maybe some more of that constant prayer that's going on, because Peter has been arrested. The story goes on for a bit, and then I want you to look um, at verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating, which is what's happened. He's being rescued by an angel. Verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John called Mark. And we see John Mark in various places in scripture. Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying. So the church is in constant prayer about Peter being in prison. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, which is just like saying, when she saw that the prayer had been answered, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. And the church in great faith says thank you god thank you lord for freeing peter from prison is that what it says girl you are out of your mind god doesn't answer prayer so fast they told her and when she kept insisting that god had answered the prayer they finally said it must be his angel which may well mean he's been put to death by now. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were simply saying, well, of course, we knew this was going to happen. No, it says they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. You know, the, the church was a praying group. There's no doubt about it. But sometimes they show their humanity. They show that they're actually just like us. We can be like this. We can pray fervently for something. And then when it happens, it's like, wow, did you expect that? No. I mean, I prayed about it. But now God 
had actually done something with this. And the church is astonished that Peter is out of prison. They think it's his ghost. And we can indeed sometimes be like that. And then I want you to look at Acts 13. And this I have read so many times to you uh, because I think this is one of the pivotal key places in all of Scripture that identifies uh, what God is about in terms of doing something with the church. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, which it doesn't specifically in verse 2 say prayer, but what exactly are they doing when they're worshiping the Lord and fasting? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, now we see the word, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so what we have here are the first kind of official ministry uh, missionaries of the church being appointed and sent out to do God's will in the world in terms of preaching the gospel, taking the good news to all the world. And how is it that Saul and Barnabas, these two wonderful men of God, get appointed to this task? It happens when some leaders, some teachers in Antioch are praying, fasting, worshiping, and God, through the Holy Spirit, says, send Saul and Barnabas. And they do. And they send them out with prayer and with some more fasting. Because that's just what the church did. Now, I don't know if that's exactly the way we do it. You know, Ron and I talked just the other day with someone who's interested in doing some short-term mission work for our church. Uh, after that, there was another request that came in for some short-term mission work for our church. We have people all the time who make these kinds of requests of our church. And we have people that we support full-time, several of them, around the world. And I'm not always there when those kinds of decisions are being made. The missions committee makes those kinds of decisions. Sometimes the elders might be involved in terms of giving an opinion about such a thing. I hope, Ron... I hope that our mission committee, I hope that our church, when they're making decisions about those kinds of things, doesn't make a decision based only on a budget or based only on some report from the missionary about what he's going to do or based on what the history of this missionary was and what he did. What I hope is that part of that process is that people will get together and fervently spend time in prayer talking to God about that specific decision. I think there's some fasting in order before that goes out. You know, it's easy for us to send the kids off to Estonia every three years or so because we think it's going to be a great thing for them. And 
Hopefully it is. But wouldn't it be beautiful if our church would pause and spend a season in prayer asking God to bless them as they prepare to go? And if one of you is thinking, boy, I'd like to go to Zambia and do some kind of short-term mission thing for a while, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a time where we said, let's go spend an evening in prayer just thinking about and praying to God about this particular mission before we send anybody out? I think that would be worth it. When the church prayed and sent out Paul and Barnabas, the whole world's history was changed. Who knows what we would be able to accomplish if we were to, like in Acts 13, pray and fast and have God bless us in the process. Kevin. Yeah, I would agree. We need to have our eyes open for people who are gifted by the Spirit in certain ways, called by the Spirit in order to do ministry in various ways. And the church needs to be willing to say to people, and maybe especially some of our young people, hey, I think God has called you to do this kind of service to him. And I think that's totally legitimate. I thought for a moment you were going to say, how exactly did the Holy Spirit Spirit speak to that person? And then I was going to be really in trouble. Wouldn't know what to say. But, um, so thanks for not asking that part of the question. <laughs> yeah. You notice I'm not even taking you seriously in any way. And now I'll just look down and move on. Well, I have here a final question that we'll finish with today. And that's simply this. Would we not possess much more the effectiveness of the early church if we shared their attitude toward prayer. Would we not possess much more the effectiveness of the early church if we shared their attitude toward prayer? And we sometimes limp along. Sometimes we feel like our ministry isn't accomplishing what we want it to accomplish. And so we work hard or we complain or we fire the preacher and get a new one. And maybe the key to our effectiveness is not those kinds of decisions, but it has way more to do with whether or not we have a life-giving, life-enveloping kind of focus on prayer that allows God to work through us 
through his spirit in a way that we never have before. And when that happens, I think we could say that we are a church that is reliant on prayer. And it's one of our core values, one that we certainly need to exercise in our body as Christians. Charles. That's a, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, um, what needs to happen so in such a significant and clear way is that we need to pray. Like when we exemplify before those who are younger than some of us, a, a life devoted to prayer, they can, in fact, see God doing things through that kind of prayer devotion and they can catch fire. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit in in the uh, in the sermon time today, because of course we're focusing on prayer for the fall. But wouldn't it be beautiful if we prayed in such a way that others who watched us pray would say, oh, "I need to pray like those people." Miles. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, well, I was just going to, like Charles, for example, I've been thinking about this a lot. Trina uh, was diagnosed with cancer last February, and we've prayed a lot for her, and you have prayed a lot for her, and at the same time, we've also follow the best medical advice that we could find and are very fortunate to be in a center where we have a learning cancer hospital. Is that the kind of thing where it's like, well, was, and we've received fantastic results. So with our kids coming up with more of a, I don't know, like a scientific worldview, I mean, they're kind of, they've been told that you can't see it, it's not real, basically, right? So are you asking the question then, you know, how do I tell my kids, look, kids, Yes, we did these medical treatments, but we've had a ton of people praying, and we're going to give God the credit for this one. Is that the kind yeah. of question that you're asking? Okay. Because for me, here's part of it, it, it kind of, as I'm journeying forward with this, is to say, you know what, I can't point definitively to my kids whether one or the other made the difference, but what I can do is say, look, kids, we definitely prayed for this. And here's what happened, and maybe it's a coincidence but I don't think so. You know, and, and I mean, that's about the best I think I can do with my kids at this point. Say, look, I think this has got to work. And they're going to have to make their own choice at some point. But the more often we pray for things to say, isn't that interesting? Look at that coincidence. Oh, look at that coincidence. You know, the kids can start to form, I don't know, and, and the whole generation coming up, they need to form their own opinions. But I, I don't know, that's part of what I, I wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's being uh, kind of courageous enough to say, Maybe it's coincidence, but I don't think so. I think that's God. Yeah. 
And we can, and you continue to pray and continue to have faith, despite the fact that sometimes the answer is not what we desire it to be. I, I, I would, I would, and I would say, to some extent, that defines faith. Like, what is faith? It's actually the evidence of things that we don't see. It's the reality of the things that we hope for. So sometimes we don't see them. We're hoping. And yet, faith continues to exist in those kind of circumstances. Go ahead. here let me let me just uh, close by saying this there have been times in the past when we have had specific times where we said we're going to get together on a sunday night and pray um i can't remember you know there was one i don't remember when when the last one was a year ago or something where there were probably 30 of us that gathered in in the fireside room on a sunday evening and we just spent the time in prayer and the church needs to have more of those we really need to have more of those and other avenues that allow us to be a more prayer focused group of Christians. Because God seems to be really interested in doing something through that kind of focus uh, when it's there among us. Daryl Bean's going to get the last word today. Right. Um, yeah, definitely another time. But I think there are some things that can be said, and we will talk about. Although this is interesting, um, I, you know, you have to make you have to make a choice about things that you can put in a sermon series. And that was one of the things. Not so much the children, but what about when God says no? That I specifically chose to take out of the series, largely because we had dealt with it sometimes in the past, um, and there were just so many things that we needed to cover, and not enough Sundays. So. Eventually, it's going to come up again for sure, though. Okay? All right. Thanks, everybody. Great class. Appreciate it.